The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Just a couple of quick reminders, if you will. If you'll just take uh, about five minutes on your way out through the back doors, if you're 18 to 44, five minutes of giving someone your swab uh, could save someone's life down the road. And uh, we did this, uh, about, we, we do it regularly, but about 10 years ago that actually happened where there was a bone marrow match, somebody at TBC, and by God's grace, I was able to protect the life of someone else. Also, uh, remember uh, Kristen Kitchen, our niece, we're trying to get out of our house and launch her to the Philippines. So where are you, Kristen? You're over there somewhere. There you go. Let's get rid of her and uh, get her out of here. Um, upstairs will be available to whoever comes next. So it's always somebody around. Uh, Dave Tate is our senior high pastor, and uh, he has the privilege of uh, bringing God's word to us this morning. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 3. You can open your Bibles and welcome Dave Tate to the pulpit up here. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to warn you, I'm a little under the weather, a little throat thing's going on, so I'll be doing a little bit of drinking up here, but not that kind of drinking. So, you know. Uh, All right, turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. At the beginning of this series, Gary told us that this verse is the key verse, the key verse to the entire book of Acts, and he is correct. It is that kind of verse. So I'm going to read that just to frame our discussion this morning. Look at verse 8, chapter 1. It says, but you will, receive the, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So right before Christ's ascension, he tells his followers that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is going to give them power. Now I want you to see this morning why they're going to need that power. Because when you look at this passage, it looks like a tame passage on the surface, and you look a little bit deeper you realize this passage is not all that tame at all. The word witness in Acts 1.8 comes from the Greek word martus. Any idea what word is related to that? Martyr. And so you can imagine um, Jesus tells his followers they're going to be witnesses in these regions throughout uh, Jerusalem and surrounding areas. And and, uh, today the word martyr is someone who gives their life for a cause. But it only came to mean that because these original witnesses gave up their life for the gospel. That word meant witnesses. Now it means someone who gives up their life for a cause because of these followers of Christ. So the new reading of the passage would be, You'll be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth suddenly you see why they're going to need that power from the Holy Spirit. And it's not just that, but also if you look at the places Jesus is sending them, he's sending them to Jerusalem, which sounds like a safe place, except for the fact that this is the very location where Jesus was tried and then murdered. And Jesus is saying, you're going to go back into Jerusalem and be my witnesses for the gospel. He also includes Judea and Samaria, and you know that the Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated the Jews. This would be like Aggies and Longhorns, Cowboys and Redskins times ten, right? And so they had a hatred for each other because of race. And yet Jesus is saying, you're going to go into that place, the place where 
you despise these people, and you're going to be my witnesses. And you can imagine the disciples wincing as he said that. Really, Jesus? We're going to go into Samaria? Them? You're going to send us into the place where we, we can't stand them. And so Jesus is sending them into these kinds of places. And what we see here is that the nature of the gospel, listen, the nature of the gospel requires that we go where we are least comfortable. This is why as a church, we value people going to the far reaches of the globe because we value the idea that the nature of the gospel requires that we go where we're least comfortable. That's why we send missionaries to places like Lebanon, the UAE. We believe as a church that we're required by the gospel to go to those kinds of places, places where we don't really see eye to eye with the people we're going to reach. And yet, the gospel bridges that gap. And so the Jews had become exclusive. They began to see themselves as, well, we're the people of God and everyone else is left out of the equation. They began to see certain kinds of people as unworthy of being the people of God. And so in the book of Acts, we're going to see all those categories just get demolished and shattered. We're going to see people that are Gentiles, Samaritans, the physically handicapped, pagan people, rich people, poor people, intellectual elite, rulers and kings come to Christ and come to embrace the gospel. And so today we're going to see an example of of one of those kinds of people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3, looking at verse 1. Acts 3, verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So I want you to imagine for a moment this man's life. Acts chapter 4 tells us this man is in his 40s. He's been crippled since birth. And so for about the first year of his life, you can imagine his parents were filled with anticipation and eagerness as he was about to take his first steps. Um, You can imagine, I know many of you are parents out there, and you can relate to the idea that whenever your son or daughter takes their first steps, it's a milestone. It's a joyous milestone for you. I can still think of my own son being in the living room of my parents' house in Virginia. He's hanging on to the coffee table. My son's seven now. He's hanging on to the edge of the coffee table at about, about the age of one. And he lets go, takes about three to four steps, and then he just implodes. 
And everyone starts clapping and cheering. And the funniest part about that is that kids always have that look on their face like, what did I just do? What did I just do? I didn't make fun of And so we see here that these parents never got to experience that with this young man. These parents never got to see him take those first steps. They never got to see him walk, run, or play with his friends. They never got to see any of that with this, with this man when he was a young boy. And so as he grows, his parents have to carry him everywhere. Now that might be okay at the age of two or three, but age four or five, my daughter is four years old. When she says, hey, Daddy, carry me, I've got it maybe ten minutes is about how long I can do that, right? And so you can imagine for this man, as he began to grow and mature and get bigger in stature, that his parents couldn't quite handle that. And so this would only further isolate him, increase his moments of isolation, and, and make those things more frequent for him. And so as kids gathered for games, there was always him off to the side, watching, never able to join in. If he wanted food or drink, he always had to ask someone to go get it for him. If he wanted to go anywhere, someone had to pick him up and carry him wherever he wanted to go. The text tells us they carried him on a mat. I imagine this mat probably got caked with mud and dirt from the streets of that society. And so you can imagine this man is is dirty. He dehumanized, he feels isolated, he feels lonely because of the crippled state that he's in. You know, when I was in college, I worked at a golf club to pay some bills, and we had an upstairs room into this country club, and, and uh, there was no elevator to get there, only stairs. And so Rotary Club met there on Tuesdays for lunch, and so this one man would come in, he's part of the club, and he was in a motorized wheelchair. And so me and another waiter literally had to pick this man up out of the wheelchair, one arm under his shoulder, one arm under his leg, and walk him up the stairs, which I'm sure was a lawsuit waiting to happen. And then put him in a wheelchair at the top. He'd go to the meeting and then do the same thing all over again when it was over. And something about this man that stuck out to me was that he was a very nice, friendly man, but every Tuesday you could just tell that he felt bad about it. You could just tell that he felt like a burden. You could just tell that he felt like, I'm sorry for putting you guys out. Thanks for helping me out. And, and our thought was, hey, it's no problem. Plus, I'm getting a great workout. And so this man felt like a burden. And I imagine that this man in Acts chapter 3 felt, in many ways, the same way. Everything about your life centers around your crippled state. Your biggest concern each day is, can I find enough money to buy food? Can I get enough money just for my daily sustenance? And your only interaction with people is when they walk by and just throw money at you. No eye contact. You can imagine this man felt isolated. He felt alone because of his crippled state. Some commentators even say that he would position himself outside the women's court at that gate called the Beautiful Gate. And if that's true, there's some debate about that, but some commentators do say that. 
if that's true, this man knew where to find compassion. Because everyone, we'd all agree that women are a lot more compassionate than men, right? And so we agree with that. And in fact, if my wife, if she sees a stray dog, it's going to go a lot better for the stray dog than if the stray dog runs into me. And so she might coax it into her car, bring it home, give it food and water, try to find an owner, and if not, try to talk me into keeping it. Um, If I see a stray dog, I just pretend I don't see it. And so we all know, we all agree that, that, that women are a bit more compassionate than men. And so if he truly is outside the gate to the women's court, then um, we know this man has put himself in a position to maximize compassion, to maximize almsgiving. We all know that there's no more compassionate person than a woman leaving church, right? And so he's outside the temple, knows where to find that kind of help. And so while some might have compassion as they walk by him, Many would just walk by him and at worst ignore him or at best just toss him some money, no eye contact, no interaction, no acknowledgement that this man is human. And so this is the way this man lived his life. But not on this day. Peter and John walk by this man and this man asked for money. And they stop. The text says they stop and they turn toward him. And gazing at him, Peter says, look at us. Now if they had to tell him to look at them, what does that say? It says that he felt shame. It says he's someone that sat there in the dirt, probably with his hand out, but his head down. Because the kind of relationship he had with people was that they walk by him and they don't look at him and he doesn't look at them. This is the way it goes. People don't see this man as truly human and he felt shame. And so here on this day, this day is different because they turn to him, they look at him and they notice this man in his suffering. They notice this man in his state. And they're going to the temple to pray. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And they're about to go do their spiritual thing that they do. And they notice this man in his suffering. They take notice of him. I think so often we get so caught up in our spiritual activities, but we ignore the needs around us. We get so caught up in our worship services, our community groups, our smaller groups, our prayer meetings... And we fail to recognize people that are in need and fail to see certain kinds of people as actual people, actual humans. And so when I was in college, I, uh, and I'm not even referring to this being about just giving someone money or throwing money at somebody because they don't even do that. They actually heal the guy. So if you can heal people, then feel free. But... We get so caught up in our spiritual activities that we ignore the needs around us. And so when I was in college, I was an intern at a church. I worked with high school students at a church. And so um, I was on my way to a staff meeting. We had a staff meeting every Tuesday. And I was driving to the church. About two miles from the church, I um, see this woman on the side of the road. She's in distress. She's got a flat tire and a small child. 
And so as I'm approaching this woman, there's this voice inside my head that says, you should stop, you should stop, you should stop. But this other voice clicked in that said, but you'll be late, you'll be late, you'll be late. So, so what do you think I did? You guys think way too highly of me. I didn't stop. I kept on driving. I kept on driving. And when you do something that cold-hearted, you start to justify it in your mind with things like, she's probably a serial killer, you know, and the flat tire and the small child are a perfect cover for that. And so I get to the church, and um, I'm there waiting. I'm the first one there because I always win. And so um, I'm at the church, and, uh, and um, after that, the high school pastor walks in. And he says, man, I, I feel awful. I just saw this woman on the side of the road, and I didn't stop to help her. And I said, no, I think you did the right thing, man. I think you did the right thing. <laughs> and then about ten minutes later, the junior high pastor walks in, looking a little bit dirty, a little bit sweaty. He says, yeah, sorry I'm late, guys. There was a lady on the side of the road, and I stopped to help her. And I'm feeling about this big at this point, right? I mean, this is like the Good Samaritan story, and I wasn't the Good Samaritan. And so, so often we get so caught up in our meetings and our schedules and our worship services, our prayer meetings, and we just fail to see other people. We fail to see people that are in need. I'm not even referring to just helping someone on the side of the road. I'm referring this is much bigger than that. This could be people that are just relationally isolated. We get so caught up in our spiritual activities that we fail to see the needs around us. But on this day, Peter and John don't do that. They notice this man's suffering. They look this man in the eye, and Peter says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So Peter takes the man's hand, and he pulls him to his feet. And for the first time in this man's life, he feels strength enter into his legs, his feet, and his toes. And as Peter lets go, the man stands upright. And the text says he doesn't limp, but he walks and he leaps and he runs into the temple. And I want you to see this. This is very significant. This is a big deal that he enters into the temple because in Leviticus 21... It tells us that this kind of man could not have been a priest and could, have not, could not have entered into the temple. But now he's healed and he walks into the temple. And so what we see here is someone who is considered unworthy being made worthy. And you'll see this theme all the way through the book of Acts. So after he's healed, he enters into the temple... And the question this raises for us is, what is this miracle about? What's really going on here in this miracle? Because in the Bible, a miracle is never just a miracle. It's a picture of something deeper. A miracle is never just a trick that God pulls off to show off his power. A miracle is something much deeper than that. And so you look at um, in the Gospels where Christ feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then just after that, he talks about being the bread of life. And so the bread becomes a picture of him, of Christ himself 
being distributed to the nation of Israel. We also see whenever Christ heals a blind man, that just after that, he talks about the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. And so we see this connection in the Gospels. Whenever there's a miracle that takes place, Christ makes some deeper spiritual connection with that. So the question becomes, what's happening in this miracle? This man is born lame. He's unable to walk. His entire life is defined by his crippled state. He's impoverished. He's bankrupt. And he can't offer anyone anything. But then he encounters, through the disciples, the power of Jesus. He goes from outside the temple and into the temple. He encounters the power of Jesus and he's completely transformed, completely changed. Who does that sound like? It sounds like us. It sounds like you. It sounds like me. Because you and I are born into sin. We're born lame. We are unable to walk spiritually. We are impoverished. We are spiritually bankrupt. And we can't offer God anything. But then you and I encounter the power of Christ. And he changes us. And he transforms us. I mean, for this man, he had no category in his mind for walk. I mean, he saw other people doing that. But he had no idea that he would ever be able to walk. He had no category for that. Just like you and I before Christ, we have no category for us walking with Jesus. That that is completely foreign to us before you and I come to know Christ. And so what we see in this passage is that this is a powerful picture of the gospel. And it doesn't stop there. This man asks for money. Just a little bit of money, just a little bit of change to his day a little bit to improve his day. And Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. What we see in the story is that this man, he only asks for what he thinks he needs. He only asks for what he thinks he needs. And I think what you and I Uh, see in this story is that he asked for a little bit of money, but God gives him more than what he's asking for. And I think you and I do the exact same kind of thing. We say to God, God, change my circumstances. God, give me a little bit more sustenance. God, give me a little bit something extra for today. Give me a little bit of change. Give me a little bit of silver and gold. And God says, well, how about I change you? How about I transform you? At a deep, fundamental level, how about I transform your entire being? And so we go to God asking for just a little change in circumstances, and God gives us more than we ask for. Because many times, you and I, we ask God for surface-level things. Just a little bit of life improvement, and God says, how about I change your life? For many of us, we think, if I just had this one thing, a little bit more money, a little bit different relationship, a better career, more success, then I'd be happy. But the things that you and I ask God for so often are just surface. Just a little bit of life improvement. 
And I'm not saying you should not pray for physical need. You should. That's biblical. But if those things become ultimate for you, if those things become the be-all, end-all for you, you are missing out on the severe, fundamental, deep change that God wants to do and bring about in you. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. You and I worship a God who wants to treat the deeper problem, not just the symptom. So the question for us is, what are the areas that you and I go to God and ask for silver and gold, all the while ignoring the real change that he wants to do in us? What are the areas of our lives that we go to him asking for just a little something extra, a little bit of life change, or a little bit of something we feel like we're lacking, and God says, no, I want to change you, I want to change your entire being. What are those areas of our lives? Maybe it's, God, give me a husband. God, give me a wife. Give me a boyfriend. Give me a girlfriend. Give me a new job. Give me more money. Give me more success. And these things are just surface. And God wants to change you at a deeper, more fundamental level. So on the one hand, this picture, this this miracle is a picture of the gospel. But I think it also deals with something else. It's a very, very important topic, and it's the topic of suffering. I think when we look at this miracle, we can see that almost every miracle in the New Testament deals with suffering on some level. We see the blind man healed. We see the lame man healed. We see the bleeding woman healed. We see um, Lazarus resurrected. And so miracles are never just random displays of power in the Gospels. Like Jesus never says to his disciples, Okay, guys, just in case you forgot who I am, you see that Pharisee? I can make him levitate, right? Like he never just does random displays of power just to show off his power. Jesus always, when he does a miracle, he always connects it somehow to suffering. His miracles always deal with suffering. So if that's true, how does the story help us? How does the story speak into our lives if this is the case? You know, um... About a year and a half ago, you guys know that Gary got diagnosed with eye cancer. And whenever that happened, I know I speak for a lot of the guys on staff, that there was just something in me personally that just kind of shifted as I look at suffering. And something just kind of hit, it just hits me more now. It just hits me differently now when I hear of someone else suffering. And so recently, about two months ago, I just feel like in the last few months I've heard story after story after story and it just has kind of sent me like into this weird funk. It might be because my wife, I've got a, a great wife, and I've got two wonderful kids, one's seven, one's four. And just the reality of our mortality, the fear and trepidation of just something happening to me, something happening to one of them. And so the last couple of months, about two months ago, my sister-in-law, who lives in Brenham, uh, she lost her father in a tragic accident. He was killed in his early 50s. He just crawled under the house to fix something electrocuted and killed, just like that. He lost his wife, or his wife is, he left a grieving wife. He left three daughters, he left three son-in-laws, and five grandchildren, all under the age of four. And this man was a fixture, a godly man in his church, in his community. And they're just reeling. And I look at that and I go, God, what in the world? What are you doing here? And then I hear 
uh, my wife has a good friend whose daughter just got diagnosed with leukemia. She's 10 years old. Another guy on our staff lost his dad to cancer this week. Another guy on our staff, his mother-in-law just got diagnosed with cancer. I've got a former intern who just lost her second baby. I've got a friend who just lost his niece to brain cancer. She was 10 years old. I went to have lunch with my son at his school. He goes to Cater Elementary. And a few weeks ago, I went to have lunch with him. And, and, you know, first graders say the craziest things at lunchtime. And so they're all just shouting out stuff at me. And they're all kind of vying for attention from us. And some kids are shouting out stuff like, I want to be Superman. I want to be Batman. Just random conversation with these little kids. And this one little kid sitting right in front of me, he just looks at me and he says, my dad has cancer, and he's going to die. And he said it with, like, not really any emotion attached to it. He just said it, matter of fact. And I just thought, how does a six-year-old process that? How does a six-year-old have a category for that in their emotional makeup? And so these stories, I just feel like they've kind of snowballed, and they've just affected me. And I feel like, I feel like suffering affects me a bit differently now. And if somebody were to say to me, well, Dave, you know, why does God allow suffering? I can give them my knowledge. I can say some philosophical answers. I can say those things. But sometimes in situations like these, you feel like your knowledge is betrayed by your experience. You just feel like there's just something about this that just doesn't seem right. And when you hear stories like that, there's just something in you that screams out. Like, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so I know in a church this size, there's a lot of suffering that takes place at TBC. And if you find yourself in that place, how does this story help us? I want to remind you this morning that miracles like this, they remind us that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And this is not the way things will always be. This story reminds you and I that God notices suffering. And I know that some of you need to hear that today. Because when people suffer, what question do they always ask? They ask the question, why? My response to that question might shock you because I don't think an answer to that question is what you need in a moment of suffering. I don't think you need a discussion, a philosophical discussion on why people suffer whenever you're going through suffering. What you need when you suffer is a story just like this. A story that reminds you that this is not the way things are supposed to be and this is not the way things will always be. What you need is a story like this to touch you and to remind you that God is a good God. That you, we serve a good God who notices suffering. We serve a good God who notices a man like this and he reaches down and he touches him and he heals him. That's the kind of thing you need when you go through suffering. Just a reminder that that's the kind of God that we serve and a God that's going to eventually make all things new. Revelation talks about this and it says that, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. Eventually, he's going to restore all of those things. Look down now at verse 11. 
It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So this miracle causes quite a stir. And this crowd rushes towards the man who's been healed and also to Peter and John. And when Peter sees a crowd, what does he decide to do? He decides to preach a sermon. This sounds like Peter, does it not? And so, in fact, if you're going to preach a sermon, it's always good to begin with a miracle. has a way of drawing a crowd. And so, now as the crowd approaches Peter, Peter could have reveled in his success. He could have lifted his hands and said, that's right, look at me, this is Peter, I did this, I'm the same guy who walked on water. This is what Peter could have done, but what does he do? Instead, he points the attention to the power of Jesus. And then he gets confrontational. Yes, this is Peter, remember? There's a large crowd. What should I do? I'm going to confront them. This is what Peter does. But watch this. In verse 13, I want you to hear these words. Peter says, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied. Then verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one. Are you seeing the irony of this? Who, who's saying this? Peter's saying this. So, so what did Peter do two months prior to this? He denied Jesus. He denied he even knew him. And so at this moment in his sermon, somebody could have stood up and pointed right at Peter and said, You hypocrite. Just months ago, weeks ago, You denied you even knew him. And now you're confronting us on our denial of Jesus. And so he could have, someone could have done that in the middle of his sermon. But what does this show us? Here's what it shows us. It shows that we serve a God of grace. The fact that God would allow someone who two months prior to deny him that he denied him two months prior, and now he is the one giving the, the two primo sermons and acts? What grace. What a God of grace that we serve. That God says, let's see, who's going to be the guy that gives the first two most important sermons and acts? Uh, let's make it Peter, the guy who denied me three times. And what's he going to confront? Oh, he's going to confront their denial of me as well. Because he knows from experience, Right? And so it shows we, have, we serve a God of grace. And Peter could have allowed shame from that previous event to, par- to paralyze him. He could have allowed himself to go off the deep end into shame, but he allowed God to work and move in him in a powerful way. And I want to ask you this morning, do you allow past sin to paralyze you from being used by God in a powerful way? Do you allow past shame, do you allow past sin to send you into a place of shame to the point where where you get paralyzed by it? 
And I'll say to you this morning that you've got one part of the equation correct in that God does take sin seriously, so we should take sin seriously, but you're missing the other part of the equation, and that is we should also take the cross seriously. We should also take his grace seriously. So someone who really understands the gospel, someone who really gets the gospel, they're someone who takes their sin seriously. They also take the cross seriously. They take their sin seriously, but they also take his grace seriously. That is someone who truly gets and grabs a hold of the gospel. So my hope this morning, if that's you, is that God would set you free this morning in the same way that he set Peter free. I want you to skip now down to verse 19. 3.19, it says, And at this point of the sermon, I just imagine Peter yelling really loudly at this crescendo of his sermon. And in verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So let's just summarize Peter's sermon very quickly. It basically goes like this. He says, you guys are impressed with this miracle, but you weren't impressed by Jesus because you killed him. You killed the author of life. And so at the end of the sermon, he is inviting these people to repent. And I would say that every good sermon ends with this kind of invitation. And so here we have the denier, Peter, confronting their denial of Jesus. And I want you to see the other side of this, too, that we also have an audience who has rejected Jesus, killed Jesus. But then Jesus resurrects. He commissions his followers to spread the gospel Then he ascends to heaven, and he sends his followers to go give those people, the same ones that killed him, to go give them a second chance. Again, what grace. We've got Peter the denier confronting their denial. In the audience we have people who were responsible for the death of Christ. And here Christ is giving them a second chance, another chance to hear the gospel and to repent. What a God of grace we serve. What a God of grace that you and I serve. The fact that he would take those kinds of people and give them second and third and fourth and many, many, many chances. It is the same thing for us. And so this morning, I want to close my sermon the same way that Peter did. I want to invite you to repent this morning. Very simple application. If you're someone who is is not a believer, you would say that you're not a follower of Christ. You would say you're not a believer You've spent your life rejecting Jesus, but the crazy thing is, you're here at church at 1217 on Sunday. And I think what God wants to do in you is he's given you another chance. Just like the Jews, he's given you another chance to hear the gospel, to submit your life to him, to surrender your life to him. He's giving you another chance. And so my hope this morning, if that's you, is that you would put your faith and trust and your hope in his work for you on the cross. You'd repent from your sins. You would turn your life over to him and walk with him. If you're someone who is a believer, you consider yourself a believer, a follower of Christ, but maybe you're not walking in obedience to him. 
Maybe you're living steeped in sin. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to turn away from your sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. Turn your life over to Him. Even as a Christian, there is repentance even in the life of a Christian. Maybe that's not you. Maybe your, your sin issue is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is still another way in which you and I reject Jesus. Because we're counting on our works and not His work on the cross for our salvation. And what you see here, repentance is also for the religious. Because where is Peter? He's in the temple. He's talking to religious Jews. He's in the middle of church in that day. And so repentance is also for the religious. And so Peter here, he preaches this hard-hitting sermon. He uses words like, you guys killed the author of life. He's He's confronting their sin. Because Peter knows that conviction always has to come before conversion. If someone's going to come to know Christ, they have to come to a place of conviction, understanding their sin before God, before they come to conversion. They have to understand that. And so he preaches this hard-hitting sermon, he says some really hard things, but then look what God wants to do as a result of someone's repentance. It says, he uses words like, sins blotted out, times of refreshing, God's presence coming down, eventually restoring all things. And I want you to skip down to verse 26. I don't have it on the screen, but look in your Bibles. Verse 26. He closes by saying, God, having raised up his servant, who was Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so what does God want to do? He wants to turn Israel, he wants to turn us away from our wickedness. And I want you to see this. Israel wanted a political Messiah to set them free from Rome. But God wants to set them free from their sin. They got more than they asked for. The lame man just wanted some money. But Jesus changed him. He got more than he asked for. And so often I think you and I are like that lame man. Begging God for some loose change. And God says, oh I've got some change for you. But it's not the kind that you're thinking about. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for being a God that changes us fundamentally. You change us at a deep level. You change us in our being, Father, when we come to know you. We pray, God, that if anyone does not know you this morning, they would come to know you today. We pray that they would put their faith and trust in you and your finished work for us on the cross. We thank you, God, so much that we get to repent and to turn to you from our sin. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.